Well, good morning. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm wearing my last summer shirt. Uh, I know it's, it's, it's October. We'll switch into uh, fall mode in, in the next coming weeks. But, you know, um, either way, welcome. Uh, I'm Pastor Mike. If you don't know my name, uh, I have the privilege of leading this church. And we are now going through a series called Generation We. Um, the series is through the book of 1 Timothy with the focus that we're taking on generations. Uh, as we are a multi-generational church, how do generations, how ought we to relate to one another? What are the things that cause us divide? And so if you remember week one, uh, we just talked about how Paul saw Timothy, one generation leader looking at the next generation leader, and you would think there'd be competition, competitiveness, we're better than you. I don't want to, you know, you guys are going to ruin everything. But you saw the exact opposite. You saw him say, I love you like my son. Uh, that, you know, unconditional kind of love. That love that wants his welfare more than his own. And you also saw him hand him the keys to the church of Ephesus. And saying, hey, you're in charge now. Uh, and so there's that love and trust that was the right posture of generations to each other. Week two, we kind of talked about how he, was, he immediately jumped into instruction saying, I want you to shut down the conversations that I'm hearing in the church about rules and regulations and laws and all those kind of things. He's like, that's, you know, the church should be united and focused on the gospel. The gospel is what we should be talking about. And of course that affects everything. But if you're pursuing Christ with a pure heart, sincere conscience, you know, genuine, clear conscience, and good, you know, uh, pure motives, then you're not going to have to worry about the rules and regulations. You're going to be doing exactly what you ought to be doing. And then this week, as we go a little bit further, you're going to find, I think, what I call a special treat uh, that, that you don't normally see, and I need to do this because how many of you guys actually bring a Bible to church? I'm not shaming anyone. Okay, all right. Okay, actually more than I thought, honestly. Okay, because this is a letter Okay, and when we put verses up here on the screen, you just see one verse at a time. Now, there's actually some Bibles out there that do one verse per line kind of thing, but you need to remember the verses came later. You know, the letters were letters. Before we put numbers on them so we could know where to turn and what to read, they existed just as a letter. And there's a structure to a letter. And so in this letter, there's a structure that very first week, we did, it was simply the greeting. It was simply, you know, hey, Paul to Timothy. You know, that's, that, that was basically what it was. Just the greeting, like, who's this letter to? Who's it from? Then he, he gets into this instruction all, right away, kind of like his, he's, why he's writing the letter. He's telling Timothy, I want you to remain at the church that you may be in charge of certain persons and not to teach different doctrines. And then he does this little side note. He says, you know, I get it. The law can be confusing. So I'm just going to do this. Let me explain a little bit about the law. So this is actually kind of a rabbit trail. You could actually pull out the passage on, the, I know the law is good, and he explains it. You could pull it out, and the letter would still read just fine. But he's doing this as kind of like a little instructional, what is that? Yeah. Oh, good. Excellent. All right, yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to those. After, after church, french fries and coffee. Um, that would work. No. Um, so, but he, he gives this little side instruction. 
just to kind of say, I'm, uh, like to, he, so he goes back into teacher mode. But then it's his next stay, step. He goes back into kind of trying to remind T- Timothy what he was calling him to. But instead of t- putting on his teacher hat, he decides to put on his uh, personal hat. Tell his story. Now, what's probably happening here from the context that we can get is that there were people in the church who were saying either for who can, who can be a member of the church or who can lead the church. They were saying, well, there's certain things that, that will rule some people out. If you've done this or done this or you did that or participated in that, you can't be a part of this church. You're disqualified. And if you've done this or that, there's no way you can lead. And so, and that's kind of the argument that some people were making, which I would say some people might find somewhat appealing. Oh, you did what? Oh, well, you know, you, you know this may not be the place for you. But so, so teacher Paul has once said, wait, 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 no, no, no. Where are they going? Are they, are they heading towards Christ? Because that's what I care about. But instead of just leaving it as an instruction, he makes it personal. So starting in verse 12, he says this. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted and ignorant unbelief. To summarize what Paul just said right there, he said, if you're going to disqualify anybody to be in the church or to even lead in the church, you should disqualify me. Because I did awful things. Now, you may or may not know Paul's backstory, but Paul was not always known as Paul. He was, before that, he was known as Saul. And if you read through the book of Acts, you'll see that Saul did some, there was a season in his life in which he was the enemy of the church, a murderer. Acts 8.3 says that this one's not going to be up there, but he says this is right after they had um, killed one of the disciples named Stephen. Paul was the one who kind of said, good job. And then they went about and they said this, Saul, who was Paul's, ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Acts 9, 1-2 says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the law, went to the high priest. He asked for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so he could find any belonging to the way men or women might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And then if they were coming to Jerusalem, they would be executed. This is this whole situation where Paul is going from house to house, synagogue to synagogue, looking for Christians so that he can exterminate them. That's who we're talking about here. So Paul oversaw all of this. And so when he speaks, he says two times, if there's a sinner in this world, I am the worst. In 1 Timothy 1.15 and 1.16, he says, I am the foremost of sinners. And I hope you understand why. I mean, just, just honestly, if I was a murderer, would you want me to be your pastor? 
Probably not. Can you imagine that interview process? You know, how's your teaching? That's oh, pretty good. You know, yeah, how's your leader? Pretty good. You know, anything we should know about? Yeah, I kill people. You know, uh, that, that might be a deal breaker. You know, I've thought about maybe we should implement the greeters. Um, I didn't tell them this morning, but in the future, greeters, we're going to do a sobriety test before you can come into the sanctuary. You know, the whole, you know, that little thing, you know, that um, we're going to make sure that we don't let anybody who isn't, you know, fully sober in here. And to be a member, well, we're going to do a drug test. We need a clip of hair, you know, a little bit of blood sample. But it's, it sounds silly, I know. And I'm glad we don't do anything like that. But the reality is, is sometimes people would sit there and go, who am I sitting next to? Wait, they did what? And we can have that kind of attitude in the church. It's very easy for that kind of attitude to pop up into us to start putting some conditions and rules on who can be here or who can lead. So despite all of Paul's awful things that he did to church, dragging men and women out, having them stoned in the street for believing in Jesus, Jesus calls him to ministry. Literally on the way to murder, going from Jerusalem to Damascus to be in charge of overseeing this dude, Jesus says, Paul, I've got a job for you. I want you to leave my church. Acts 9, 13 to 16, but Ananias, one of the disciples who heard this, said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then in Paul's own words later in Galatians, he would say, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And I did not, and it goes on. So, so once again, you see that there's this, this, this is the guy that Jesus sit there and said, you. And that's a really low bar. And that is, uh, you know, that, that is what most of us would say, unbelievable. In which the disciples at the time, I mean, you have to know, when Paul did come to Christ and was radically transformed, they were still skittish around him. They didn't trust him. It took a guy named Barnabas, who if you guys know, like was this super encouraging guy, you know, like the most encouraging, optimistic guy you'll probably ever hear of, who said, Paul, I believe that God is actually going to do something with you, and he built him up. But what's interesting here, I want you to look at verse 12. It says, I thank, I thank him who gave me strength, Christ Jesus Lord, because he judged me. And you would usually think that, that when you say judge me, you usually think of what's going to disqualify you. Oh, oh no, no, that's, that, you're, you're disqualified. You, you did that? Oh, you're out. Uh, you can't be. But he says he judged me. He uses the word judge me. He judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. And it's, it's just an interesting perspective. We often look at people's past, but God looks at your future, what you'll be. And he ignores your past, or at least pays for it, covers it, and what we just did. 
And so in all of that, Paul makes that statement about this wonderful grace. And so then he turns to, um, he, tur- well, he turns back to the point, and he goes uh, to Timothy and he says this in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That's basically like, this is the non-negotiable. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's his point. Now that may not resonate with you because you probably heard Jesus saves or uh, the word sinners might be a word that we have just kind of come to associate with Jesus' salvation. But his point is, is he didn't come to save the good or the talented, uh, the people who are good-looking. You know, that would be our church. Um, Nice people, that's our church too. Um, Religious, you know, the ones that are more good than not, um, 51% good. He said, no, they, he, he came to save sinners. That means, I mean, basically, he came to save the hopeless, the lost, those without anything good in them. And he says, and you know how I know that? Because he saved me. Paul is the proof that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. No matter how bad, no matter how lost, that's who he came to save. And then you get this really neat moment. After he says that statement, he says, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, once again, he's emphasizing that he's the worst, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So basically he's saying, if, you know, if he can save me, there's not a person out there that's going to sit there and go, well, what about me? And so, well, if he can save Paul, he can save me. And when he says that, he's, he breaks into praise to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And I need to pause just for a second, because when was the last time when you thought about what Christ has done for you, you broke out into song? Josh, you nailed it, by the way, uh, on that song. Thank you for setting the sermon up. But, but, you, but think about that, because that's what just happened. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy talking about his own conversion and he gets so moved in a letter by the way not just like in a moment in a letter that he breaks out into song because he's still moved after decades of ministry after decades of being already a christian he he remembers the mercy god has for him and he and he just worships thank you because that's where we ought to be god's mercy is so moving, so great, that in the middle of this letter, Paul goes off script just to praise him. There's no purpose, you know, there's just to feel the power of God's grace to him. And so he goes back to Timothy and he says, this, 
This is my charge to you. This is, the, this is the gospel that you are to guard. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. He's, he's saying, like, fight for that gospel. Do not let anyone add any conditions or rules that would, would, would keep anyone away from Christ's message of salvation. And you can see he, he puts in a whole bunch of words that tie it back to that original message to charge. He reminds him of the relationship, that, that pursuit of faith and good, uh, good conscience. Because the temptation is for all of us is once we have been rescued or saved to say that there was something in us that made us worthy of that salvation or that grace. Timothy is actually a great example of someone who could be swayed to think otherwise. Because yes, Paul was a murderer, a blasphemer, a persecutor. Timothy was a good Christian kid. His grandmother was a believer. His mom was a believer. He was raised as a believer, and now he's in the church. That's all he's ever known. He doesn't have a story like Paul's. At least we never hear of Timothy having some, you know, rebellious season or wayward streak or, or you know, doing anything. He, he seems to have been pretty much one of those people who, who like, you know, if you sit there and say, hey, when, when did you come to faith? Timothy would go, I just don't remember. Kind of always been there. But yet, what Paul is trying to tell Timothy is that, you know, Timothy might sit there and say, but Paul, I don't have some great mercy story. I don't have that moment where I was like, oh my goodness, I'm awful, and now you saved me still. I just, I don't remember ever not being in your grace. But Paul's saying, but Timothy, you do. You were saved equally by God's great mercy and love. Nothing of you. We all do. There's not a single person in this room or on this earth that merited God's love and favor. God's call to Timothy, and as he says, uh, and Timothy's call to ministry was the same as Paul's. Verse 19 20 say this, holding faith and good conscience by rejecting this, say some people have, have rejected this teaching, some have shipwrecked their faith, among whom are boomers and Gen Xers, whom I've handed over to Satan that they may not learn to blaspheme. No. Um, he calls out these two guys who, who, are, who have been adding to the gospel. And he, he, he literally kicks them out of the church. The wording in there, you know, it sounds rough, but... Um, it says, among whom are Hymenus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, they may learn not to blaspheme. Handing over to Satan, just a quick, this is one of those side notes like Paul did for law. Uh, handing over to Satan basically meant you're out of the church, we've tried, now life is going to have to teach you who's right, who's wrong. And if you ever repent and return, we'd love to have you. But until then, you're, we, we have no power over you. And so he, for these two, 
who were probably teaching that you you got to look the right way, you got to dress the right way, you got to got to you know uh, look the part of a believer. You got you know those kind of things. They were, he said, that to him was completely unacceptable. So he kicks them out. And I love the imagery. Shipwrecked their faith. That's what he uses. You know, uh, I don't know about you, you guys, but when I was a kid, I loved water sports. Um, grew up in Texas, so we were in the water a lot because it's the only place that's cool. Um, and, you know, I mean, there would be, I told you last time, and I said it wrong, I said a 30-meter platform dive, but it's a 10-meter platform dive because 30 meters would be like, you know, really high. Um, but we, and, you know, you just flail off, and you'd land, and you'd land in the water, and every now and then you'd get a sting because your, you know, belly flopped or you hit your back or something like that. But for the most part, you threw yourself off a 10-meter platform dive, which is three, three stories tall, unafraid, because you're landing in water. You're going to splash. We would do that all the time. It was fun. Um, we would get on, on um, the back of motorboats with the tubes, and, you know, and I, I, they don't do it the way they used to. But our drivers, I swear they were going 100 miles per hour, um, but they would do these turns and figure eights, and they would fling the tube out, like to the point where you're just, you know, everything on you. But then every now and then, you, you, you couldn't hold on anymore, and you'd fly off. And it was just so much fun. Why? Because you were landing in water. Water was kind of safe. We used to play King of the Raft, or uh, if you ever want to have a really fun game, guys, this is a great one. Try to balance two guys on a, on a stand-up paddleboard. It is really tough. Um, one person can do it, two people just, you know. But we would have battles on stand-up paddleboards, you know, kind of thing. Who can, who can knock each other off, or these small rafts? And it was all fun and safe because you landed in water. I think about one-time water skiing, um, and, uh, you know, this is in the wakeboard. Either way, point being, long story short, um, wiped out. And, you know, I, what I learned to do is I tuck and kind of, you could skip on your back. You know, I don't know if you've ever done that. But if you're going fast enough and you don't want to just eat it, you go over, you have a little ball, and your back will act like a stone, and you'll just skip across the water on your back. And once again, all fun because you're in water. Water gives us this sense of security. We feel like it can't really hurt us. But so then why are there shipwrecks? Because there's things in the water sometimes that you don't see. Maybe there's a branch, a rock, an iceberg. And something like that, the water hides it. You know, so I've, I've heard of people who were diving off a cliff, having fun, and then one person lands on a rock. Or water skiing and they hit a branch. You know, things like the Titanic or things like that. You know, ships going down because they hit an iceberg. Things that they did not see because the water hit them. And I'm going to say that's what the law does sometimes. These rules and regulations, they don't seem so bad. Sometimes you can sit there and say, what's the harm in saying, you know, you have to dress a certain way, talk a certain way in order to be here? It doesn't seem like it's really dangerous. But the law underneath, that con- adding a condition to Christ's love will shipwreck your faith. Because what tends to happen is you begin to add more and more and more. 
And so as we get back into this idea of the generations, I see that often. You know, according to Paul and that statement, there is not a better generation than another. You know, my generation is not better than yours. Yours is not better than mine. We are actually all completely in need of God's mercy and grace. That statement that Christ came to save sinners is an equalizing statement. It puts us all on the same level. There's none that can claim that we do it better. But the reality is, is that we do, when we think about my generation versus the older generation versus the younger generation, we do start to put in there things like, well, we didn't do that. We don't do that. Things like how we speak, how we dress, the important issues or the causes of our day that we think are the most important. What kind of ethics or politics that we're involved in. We begin to add these things and we start to make ourselves, we feel, superior. We think we're better and they're worse. That is what will shipwreck our faith. Truth of the gospel is that it makes us all equal. We're all equally needy. We're all equally broken. It also makes us all equally made right by God's grace. And so I am so grateful that in years past, that in every generation from Christ till today, He has found people who have understood how great a salvation they have. And they've become proclaimers of the words. I'm thankful for the generations before me who taught the generations after them and who have taught my generation. And according to our church, there's only very few from my generation that have come to faith, but I'm grateful for the few that are out there. Um, But I am very much looking forward to how God will continue His work of letting the next generation carry forth that great salvation. Because I trust if he did it for the ones before me and he did it in my generation and the ones he's going to do it again and again and again until he comes. That's what I look forward to. Let's pray. Lord Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for that you got emotional and let Paul express how wonderful salvation he experienced. Thank you for putting that moment in your word, reminding us, Lord, that we too, no matter how many years pass, should still be moved by the fact that you chose us despite everything. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to be a church that proclaims your gospel without condition, that helps people pursue you letting go of all that was behind them, no longer counting that against them, and letting them run that race to you, free, unhindered, so they can run into your arms. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.